words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. About every six months or so, I get a little white box in my mailbox, and I'm always grateful to see that because it contains my contact lenses. And I'm extremely nearsighted, and so I have to have lenses to correct my vision, or everything is just a blur. Um, In fact, sometimes my kids like to play a game in the evening. I take my contacts out and usually have my glasses, but they ask me to take my glasses off, and they stand about two feet from me and hold up their fingers and say, what do you see, Dad? And all I I usually, all I can make out are these blobs. So uh, I'm grateful for contact lenses. I'm grateful for eyeglasses. Um, I found out this week that the first eyeglasses were probably invented in the 13th century in Italy, possibly by a monk, because the first reference to eyeglasses that we have, the first record of eyeglasses that we have, is in a sermon by a Dominican friar, an Italian Dominican friar. He's talking about new technology, and he's talking about eyeglasses in the 13th century. Um... Anybody here grateful for bifocals? Do you know who we have to thank for bifocals? Benjamin Franklin. Very good. 1784, he invented. Well, you know, a lot of us need lenses to correct our physical vision. We all need spiritual lenses, so to speak, to correct our spiritual vision, to see Jesus rightly. And that's what I want to talk about today based on our gospel reading which took place on Easter Sunday. This uh, gospel reading, we still are in the Easter season as Anglicans. We don't pack up the Easter decorations quite yet. We want to take some time to um, reflect deeply on the meaning that Christ is risen and how we can experience his presence, his risen presence, and know him risen and alive today. And so we need some lenses in order to see Jesus rightly, the risen Christ, even today. Now, this story, as the disciples, Cleopas and and perhaps his wife, we don't know exactly uh, who these two disciples were. Um, We know it's named here Cleopas, but uh, we don't know who the unnamed disciple was. But it probably was, likely was, a husband and wife walking together from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles. But taken a couple hours, I think, for them to get there. So they have a lot of time and a lot of things to talk about. And it's kind of humorous at the beginning. Because Jesus, the risen Christ, appears to them. And uh, he says to them, what are you talking about? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened? Of course, he's the only person in Jerusalem who knows everything. <laughs> everything that has happened. But, uh, but they say, you know... Haven't you heard? Aren't you watching the news? This, this great prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, was mighty in word and deed. And we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We had hoped that he would be our Savior, our Deliverer. But the chief priest had him crucified. So they're disappointed, and then they're confused, because now they say it's gotten strange. There's... Some of our women, some of our female disciples have gone to the tomb and they found it empty. They say they've seen a vision. And so they're disappointed and they're confused. 
and they're not sure what to think. But they're clearly walking down this road, on this journey of disappointment and uh, confusion. And Jesus is walking right there with them. I think that's a lesson in and of itself. He's still on the road with us, even though we don't always make sense. It doesn't always make sense. But do you wonder if Jesus had to stifle a smile on his face as he's walking alongside of them? And he's going to teach them here how they can encounter him, how they can see him rightly. Um, And I think part of the reason, it says that they did not recognize him. I think part of the reason might have to do with the fact that he is in his resurrected body. And there was something different about Jesus' resurrected body. There were some different properties that he had in his resurrected body that he didn't have in his earthly body. And, uh, for example, last Sunday we saw that the disciples were locked in a room for fear of the Jews. The doors were locked, John says, but Jesus suddenly appeared in the room. So there's some, there's some difference here between the earthly body of Jesus and the resurrected body of Jesus. There's some otherness, but there's also a lot of sameness, too, because he shows them the scars, he eats with them, and so um, his, his, there, there's continuity and discontinuity between the earthly body of Jesus and the resurrected body of Jesus. And I think by analogy, we can, we can kind of say that that's probably be the case with our resurrected body. There'll be continuity and discontinuity. There'll be some otherness, but there'll be some sameness with our resurrected body as well. So maybe that's part of the reason, but that's really not what Luke is emphasizing here. Uh, The problem wasn't uh, with their eyes or really with Jesus' resurrected state, I don't think, so much as it was with their understanding. There's a spiritual vision that they need to have in order to see Jesus rightly. So Jesus is going to teach them and he's going to teach us how to put on these spiritual lenses so that we can see him. And the first lens is the lens of Scripture. Right? He points them to Scripture. Um, These two disciples, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, are about to get the greatest Bible teaching ever from the greatest Bible teacher. I mean, here is Jesus himself, and he's going to take them through the Old Testament, and he's going to show them how the Old Testament relates to him. How would you have liked to have been there with them at that time? It says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's a famous uh, English preacher named Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, who said to a student one time, Your job when you preach in the Old Testament is to show how the text leads to Christ. And he said, he made an analogy. He said, it's like here in in England, in every town, in every village, in every hamlet, there is a road that eventually will get you to London. And he said, in every text of the Old Testament, you've got to find the road to Christ. There is a road to Christ. If you have to go over a ditch to get there, you've got to get there as a Christian preacher. You've got to show how the Old Testament story relates to the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. So there's some truth there. So Jesus is showing these disciples how the Old Testament points to him. And uh, 
it's interesting to think about what Jesus might have brought up. You know, I'm, I'm, I would surmise that he went back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, where there's a prophecy about Jesus, his redemptive work. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this was after the fall, God curses the serpent. God curses Satan. Satan has succeeded in getting Adam and Eve to sin, but God comes to the serpent and says, the battle's not over. There's a seed that's going to come from Eve, this woman. He is going to bruise your head. You are going to strike his heel. So there's going to be a battle. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be bruising of the heel, bruising of the head, but the seed of woman is going to ultimately conquer. And the preview of that conquering, of that victory of the seed of woman in this battle with Satan is that God then curses the serpent, how? To crawl in the dust. To crawl in the dust. And one commentator said, this means Satan is going to bite the dust. In this battle with the seed of woman. And, and so we see that on the cross. The cross looked like a victory for Satan. The cross looked like a defeat for Jesus. But it was where God won the victory. Because at the cross of Christ, God reconciles people to himself. God brings forgiveness and healing and wholeness and redemption through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And then God raises Jesus from the dead three days later, vindicating his son and demonstrating and proving that Jesus' sacrifice was valid. And it was all part of God's plan and purpose. To bring salvation to the world. So I, I think that Jesus probably went to Genesis 3.15 to begin with. And then probably he touched on Psalm 22, which is part of our liturgy um, for Maundy Thursday. At the end of the Maundy Thursday liturgy, when we strip the altar, we say Psalm 22, which begins with the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' last words, one of his last words on the cross. He's thanking Psalm 22, even while he's dying and suffering on the cross. But you think about Psalm 22. This is a psalm that David wrote about a thousand years before Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And just listen to some of the things that David says in this psalm. He says, They have pierced my hands and feet. David never went through that. He's prophesying about what will happen to the Messiah, to Jesus. He says, they divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. What happened to Jesus at the cross? That's exactly what the soldiers did. This is a prophecy of the suffering of Christ. And then it ends, though. It begins with this cry of dereliction, but then it ends with this victory. Because at the end of the psalm, it says, towards the end, all the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. So there's a connection to this person who's going to suffer. My hands and feet are pierced. And then this victory of God, where God is going to demonstrate his salvation and his goodness to all the nations of the world and people from every tribe and nation and language 
is going to acknowledge the goodness of God and bow down to him. And we're part of that fulfillment of that prophecy because we're part of the people who bow down to God and worship him for what Christ suffered for us. So Psalm 22, I think Jesus would have touched on that. And certainly, I would almost bet my life, I would bet my life, that he talked to them about the suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, one of the servant songs. And we know this well. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. And the question is, who? Who's the suffering servant? And Jesus understood that he was the suffering servant of God. And through his stripes, we would be healed. And through his suffering, we would be made whole. And the chastisement that should have been upon us was upon him at the cross. And so this is what Jesus is getting these disciples to see. Put on the lens of Scripture. Look at the Old Testament and see how my suffering was necessary for the redemption of the world and for your salvation. They needed to understand that all of God's redemptive history, all of God's history of salvation was moving towards this moment, this redemptive work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And friends, I think we need to remember that today, that not only as we look at Scripture, we see God's plan unfolding in Jesus Christ, but that should encourage us to understand that God is in control of history, ultimately. That there is a center and a meaning to history found in Jesus Christ. And history is moving towards the day when Christ returns. And this is all going to be completed. We look at our world today and we wonder, what, what's happening? Who's in control? The rise of North Korea. What's Russia going to do? And the pundits and the analysts are all talking about the future and what might happen and we wring our hands, we need to remember our sovereign Lord God, who's in control of history and has already demonstrated that Jesus Christ is the center and the meaning of it all. And there's going to come a day where it finally wraps up and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Christ is Lord. So scripture is the lens in which we need to understand Jesus I like how it says after Jesus left, they said, they were talking and they said, was not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scripture? They got excited about what scripture was saying to them about Jesus Christ. And has that been your experience sometimes in Bible study, in Bible teaching? Hopefully when you're hearing sermons once in a while, you get heartburn, the right kind of heartburn, you get excited about what you're seeing in Scripture and about what it's telling you about your Savior? This is one of the lenses that God has given us, Christ has given us, to see Him even today. We can't see Him physically with our eyes. They saw Him physically and still didn't understand. But we have the Scripture to behold Him and to understand who He is. Well, there's another lens that Jesus gives us. It's a meal. The disciples invite Jesus as their guest to stay with them. Jesus is their guest, and then 
he becomes the host of this meal. And listen to these words of Christ. This should sound very familiar to us. Or listen to this narrative of what happened. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Sound familiar? This is what we do every Sunday at the Eucharist. This is the pattern that Jesus has given us. This is a lens that Jesus has given his church even though we physically can't see him. He's left this gift to us to encounter his presence with us today, here and now. It says later that their eyes were opened and they recognized him when they had this meal. And he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. N.T. Wright, the Anglican theologian and bishop, says this about communion. He said, Jesus gave this set of actions to the church to explain the meaning of his death. You see, one of the keys of this passage is Jesus explaining why he had to suffer, and he wants his disciples to see him through that lens of the cross, and then the vindication, the resurrection. This is how we understand who Jesus is. If your understanding of Jesus doesn't include the cross and the resurrection, you need to put on some new lenses. And so he he gives them this meal, and N.T. Wright says this, he says, Jesus knew that this set of actions would explain the meaning of his death in a way that nothing else could. No theory about it, no clever ideas about it could fully explain the significance of this meal and the significance of his death, so he leaves this behind. And he says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And the biblical understanding of remembering a past event is not that it's just a mere recollection. A biblical understanding of remembrance is that the event that you're remembering becomes somehow present to you in the here and now. The meaning of it, the significance of it, is is offered to you in the moment. And so when we come to this table trusting in Jesus Christ, we understand he's present with us. There's different ways to theorize about it, but he's with us in the bread and in the wine. He's being offered to us. And I I don't know about you, but I know that there's been times when I've really blown it with the Lord. And uh, I've come to the table, and usually this has happened when I'm not the one giving it out, when I've been in the position of receiving the bread and wine from somebody else. But there's been times where I come to the table really aware of my sin. And um, to hear somebody say to me, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. This is the bread of eternal life. There's been times where I've taken those elements and I felt as if Christ himself was saying that to me. You're forgiven. You're clean. You're whole. You're washed. It doesn't happen all the time and doesn't need to happen. All the time. It's not about our feelings. But it's this objective gift that God has given to us in in an objective way of communing with Him in the bread and the wine. And it's wonderful when, by the Spirit of God, it becomes alive and real to us. And I know many of you have experienced that as well. So these are the two lenses. Isn't this interesting? Holy Scripture and a holy meal. And this is what we do. 
every Sunday. Right? We read the scriptures. We try to understand how Christ is present with us in the scriptures and what Christ means to us through the scriptures. And then we gather around this table and Christ establishes contact with us. He offers afresh his forgiveness, his love, his healing, his promise to come again at the table of the Lord. And so we need these lenses. We need to see Jesus through these things. Because, you know what, there's all sorts of versions of Jesus out there. There's all sorts of ways that you can understand Jesus today. You go to a bookstore, you go online, and there's all different versions of Jesus. There's Jesus as your life coach. You know, you follow Jesus because he will inspire you to pursue and achieve your goals for your life. He will help you get your best life now. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so that's the purpose of Jesus, to be your life coach. And in those versions of Jesus, oftentimes you don't hear the call of Christ to take up your cross, die to self, and follow me. And then you'll know true life. Not only here and now, but for all eternity. And that's even more important than what's happening here and now. is the eternal life that Christ offers. But that's one of the versions. Jesus' inspiring life coach. And then you have Jesus as a religious guru. And he's just one guru among many. And you can pick and choose whatever suits your fancy. But if he works for you, great. If he doesn't, then find somebody else. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That's not the apostolic message. Peter said, the first sermon in the church, Peter said, this one who you crucified is now Lord and Christ. God has demonstrated that he's Lord and Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he's not just one among many. He is the one, the crucified and risen Christ. Then there's the Jesus of religious liberalism. Which one theologian has described this way? Christ without a cross, who brings men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment. <laughs> Not the Jesus of Scripture. Then there's the Jesus of the prosperity gospels. This is what you see on TV if you stop and listen a lot of times. In this version, you follow Jesus so he can shower you with wealth and material blessings. In fact, I know somebody who went to one of these crusades in St. Louis a couple years ago, one of these TV preachers, and the preacher had them stand up. This was in a very large arena. Stand up and raise their hands to heaven and say, money, money, money. Bless me with money. Can you believe it? Mammon, the God of money, replaced the God of the Bible. But the idea is, and you've probably heard this, if you give to my ministry, you're going to get a tenfold return. So into my ministry, $100, and God's going to bless you with 1000 And people fall into that. It's not the God of Scripture. It's not the Christ of the Bible. So there are all these false ways of looking at Jesus. But in his mercy, Jesus himself taught us how to see him. Through Scripture and through the breaking of bread. Let's stay faithful to the way he taught us. Amen. Gracious God, we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to see you in these ways. Help us to grow deeper in our relationship with you through these ways. By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to deepen our faith in you. Cause our hearts to burn as we encounter you in Scripture. 
Help us to go out and proclaim that you are risen, Lord, as we encounter you, as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.